Welcome back, or perhaps welcome to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond Fryer. My areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. With me is my really tall, really expert swing coach and a good friend, Chase Cooper. Chase, we got a special episode this week. It's our first guest. We have our first guest. We had a. Uh, we also had an interesting. We're not a, a, a current events golf podcast, but we had an interesting week this week. A fun little little run at the Tour Championship. Victor playing some good golf, and then also some some interesting Ryder Cup stuff. Um, Captain Zach Johnson picking JT. I thought was I thought was pretty interesting. But the more important part, you're right, is we do have our first guest. People are tired of just listening to you and I talk about the stupid game we're playing, so we had to get somebody else that was smarter than we were to, to come on the podcast, and that is my good friend, our good friend, uh, Director of Instruction out at and co-owner of the Axis Golf Academy, Mr. Alan Hody. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Hey, I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. I'm, I'm very, very honored to be the first guest, but I'm already questioning, like, we got to get you guys some better friends if, 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 if you're already grabbing from the bottom of the barrel for the first go round. Well, we needed somebody to be the guinea pig, you know, and we were like, who's our friend that uh, doesn't mind falling in it just in case it doesn't go well the first time around? So we we're like, oh, Alan, he's our guy. <laughs> the, the, the I'm the, Hody, the problem is I, I told Raymond I was worried because you may drop this is a, this isn't an explicit podcast. So you may drop some F bombs. I was like, we better be careful. We're gonna I got my beeper ready. We're gonna beep you out live. We're gonna do it real time. One of my juniors one of my juniors' parents is actually you, you saying that's funny. And they were like, Well, what are you gonna talk about? And I'm like, Well, I'm not really sure, but I am pretty sure that they're gonna have to do some editing when we get done. That's fine. We do have a small subset of listeners playing a drinking game at home. So perhaps, you know, when you drop a, something beep worthy, that's when they can tip one back. So my crowd. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll introduce you a little bit and then I'll let you kind of take it from here. Um, good friend, colleague, mentor of mine. Um, I've known, I've known you for the last 10 months. I've, I've worked with you and your team and um, I would have to say one of the best academies, one of the, the, uh, most well-run academies that I've ever been a part of that I've, that I've been associated with probably more good players coming out of South Texas from, from the Axis Golf Academy than any other academy that I know of. And, um, like I said, been in the trenches with you guys for the last 10 months and you and Ben and EJ and Sean, you guys just do an absolute wonderful job. And, Again, for any of y'all listening that live close to close to Houston, close to the the south, anywhere in South Texas, go see these guys because because they are the best, and that's the nicest thing I'm ever going to say about you again. So just just make sure this is recording. You're lucky, very lucky. So that's that's as far as I'm going to go. But uh, anyway, uh, Hody, tell the listeners about you. Give us a little rundown how you got here, all that fun stuff. Well, thank you, and I, I appreciate the, appreciate those kind words. So. I guess a little bit of my uh, kind of background story is um, compared to a lot of people maybe doing what what you and I do, Chase, is I know your golf background. You grew up around the game. Your dad was a, a high school coach, if I'm not mistaken. So you kind of grew up into the game. Um, I was very fortunate that I actually had a family member that was a, a, a pretty well-known golf professional in, in the Houston area. His name was Art Hody. And he kind of made a name for himself as a, as an instructor. But I get people that come up to me all the time and they're like, well, did you get to spend a lot of time with art? And I was like, well, not really. And it certainly wasn't around golf. I didn't pick up the game until very, very late. So 
my childhood, I was I was an athlete. You know, I played every sport you can imagine. But my my family background is my my mother and father opened a a motorcycle dealership well before I was born. So beyond the normal sports, I grew up as a motocrosser and being around that kind of world and arena. So you know, a lot of similarities. You know, we had to, we had to do work. You know. With, in a weird way, we're kind of mechanics of our in golf. We're trying to figure those things out. It's a bit of a solo sport once you're in the arena. Um, so I kind of that's where I got a lot of my kind of you know childhood stuff. And then I this is good story, bad story, but I actually had some friends that were going to go out and, and and play golf. I had just come off an injury to where I said, you know what. I'm done with the motorcycles as far as racing anymore. Um, I'd gone through enough of them. This one kind of did it in, broke a collarbone, broke a couple ribs. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not good enough to keep doing this to myself. Uh, there was no real future to, to, to go and do that for a living. So I had some buddies that were going to go play golf and they were like, Hey, we're going to go play golf. You want to go with us? And I was like, no, man, no, I don't want anything to do with that. They're like, man, come on, just come hang out with us and and we'll uh and we'll have some fun. I was like, okay, I'll go. I don't I don't have anything else to do. I literally rode around with them for 17 holes. And we got to the last hole and they're like, I can't believe that you haven't gotten out of the cart and like hit a single golf shot. I'm like, I told you guys I didn't really want to play, but I love hanging out with y'all. So I'm here I am. They were like, Well, you gotta come hit one. I was like, okay. And I, you know, I fancy myself a pretty good athlete, and I'm looking at these guys. I'm going, this can't be that hard. So sure enough, I walk up there, tee the ball up, and make contact with the first one. It kind of goes out there, typical thing, just starts a little bit left, and slices over into the fairway, but it's but it's in the fairway. And I'm like, what's the big deal? And they were like, well, I can't believe that happened either. You got to do it again. Well, let's just say that the next ones did not go that well. So from that point, I was very competitive and I was very into like trying to figure out how to get better at things that I chose to do, whether it was sports or motocross at that time or whatever it may have been. So I was like, well, I'm not riding anymore. Um, I'm, I'm not playing the other sports anymore. I'm like, man, I do want to compete at something. And I had a good friend of mine that was already a really, really good player. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give this golf thing a go. And typical to fashion for me, it became every second that I had open, every kind of minute that I could do it. Um, I worked at our family business at the time. So we were closed Sundays and Mondays. So where was I at on Sundays and Mondays? On the golf course all day long, me and that buddy of mine that I was telling you about, um, there was a golf course, so I'm from Brenham. There's a golf course locally there called Belleville Golf and Recreation. So it was about 15 or 20 minutes outside of Brenham in Belleville, Texas. It was a nine-hole golf course. You would just loop it twice and just play different tees. Well, the pro out there at the time would let us play all day long for nine bucks. Well, I didn't have any money perfect for me I, I was creating this passion for golf and now all of a sudden i had a pro that was allowing us access to a golf course 
for $9 and we could have been the first tea time. And if we wanted to, we could have stayed until the gates closed. And I can tell you on Sundays, that's pretty much what we did. Um, and then Mondays we were closed. So there was another place down the road from us in New Ulm. Uh, it was called The Falls. Again, kind of fortunate circumstance. Uh, the pro out there kind of took a liking to, to me, I think, because he could see that I was trying to find a way to, to get better and trying to find a way to get good. So he said, um, he'd sell me a, a bucket of range balls, and I'm, I'm thinking there's probably 100 balls in this basket. Five bucks. Well, at the falls at that time, they had this 100-yard wedge area. I could go there. I was allowed to go there for hours, and I could hit those balls, go pick them up, hit those balls, go pick them up, hit those balls. I'm telling you, I would sit there for four or five hours. I'd stop in between at some point. They had one of the best hamburgers you could ever have, so I'd go have a hamburger. I'd come back, and I'd spend a couple more hours hitting wedges, and then to end my day, I'd take that basket of balls and go hit them on the range, and then I was done. So I could practice all day long for five bucks, plus whatever the hamburger cost me. And I'm going to tell you, the hamburger cost me more than the golf balls. And then every once in a while, the pro would go, hey, Alan, if you want to, why don't you go play one and nine? So I'd play down number one, and I'd play number down back down number nine. And I can tell you, I know number one and number nine, like ready to go. First time I saw the rest of the golf course, I'm like, what do I do now? I don't know how to play the rest of this thing. So... That leads into, man, I, I developed this love and this passion for golf. And now I'm glued to TV, watching everything I could watch. So this would be probably 94. And the person that I remember so vividly, even today, that just caught my eye and said, man, that is how you're supposed to play golf, was Ernie Els. Well, unfortunately, I'm not built like Ernie Els. So I learned how to swing it smooth and really slow <laughs> but i got better uh turned myself into a, a single digit handicap for where i was from which golf courses weren't that difficult um in less than a year like it was a lot of golf well then that same friend of mine that was a good player was like so this is a year and a half later maybe almost two years he goes hey Hody, won't you come to um, golf school with me? I'm like, there's a golf school? Like, what's that about? And he's like, well, it, it's it's like a, a professional golf management program, and they kind of teach you the the business of golf and um, and do all that. I'm like, okay, sounds good. Let's go. So we loaded up and went out to Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and I don't know that I really learned anything about the golf from a business standpoint. But the thing that I got was an avenue and a place to play golf. Now, not just on Sundays and Mondays and practice and ever after work. Now I got to play golf every day and I got to see different golf courses, which was a little freaky being a, you know, country boy from Texas. And all of a sudden now there's desert everywhere. I was like, Whoa, what's going on here? But Learned a lot, um, probably figured out pretty quickly that I didn't really want to be golf business from the standpoint of like being some sort of general manager or something like that. Uh, it was pretty clear that what I wanted to do was probably teach. 
Uh, and then like anybody else at that age, I thought I was going to be able to play. That didn't happen. But I did meet a few people and learned a lot of things. And actually, one of the things that got me into club fitting was actually there in Phoenix, Arizona. I'll tell that story a little bit later if you want to know it. Well, so I spent a couple of years there. Um, right around that same time, my my mother had passed away. So I kind of went through this kind of reset in my mind of trying to figure out, okay, what am I doing? I'm not really kind of spending enough time out here and feeling like I'm learning anything. So I decided to come back to Texas. Um, actually moved in with my my now wife. I, I moved in with her and her family when I came back to Texas. My dad was living somewhere else. And, you know, like I said, my mom had just passed away. So I was like, you know what? She, she was just about to graduate from from Texas A&M. And it kind of became a question of, well, where are we, where we going to end up? Well, she was like, well, most likely I'm probably going to end up somewhere in the Houston area. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go look for a job. So from Brenham, and I went uh, interviewed at Cypress Wood Golf Club. So I got the assistance job at Cypress Wood Golf Club. This would be, this must be late 99. This must be like right in the beginning of 2000. March, April, something like that. Got the job. So I drove back and forth from Brenham to Cypresswood, which wrong time of days to be driving in, in Houston. So it took me probably a good hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes to get to work and then depending on traffic, sometimes a little bit less. Well, same thing. Got around some great people. That's where I first met Kevin Kirk, who was teaching. He was a director of instruction at the time at, at, um, at Cypresswood. And that's where I started kind of falling in love with the idea of, of instruction. Uh, I was already doing some club fitting. And then we had a general manager by the name of Kelly Walker. And I'm going to tell you right now, without, without Kelly and without Kevin, there's no chance that I would be where I am right now. The, the, the education that I got from being around Kevin, who had already had some high-profile players and some tour players and done a lot of stuff in the game, and then the blessing of our general manager, Kelly Walker, to let me explore what I had a passion for, which was teaching and club fitting. So at the time, I, I was actually working in the shop. I'd go hang out with Kevin. Kelly would give me occasional Saturdays off as an assistant golf professional, which is unheard of. But it wasn't because it was going to be a day off. I was actually a tech rep for Titleist. So I was doing demo days. And again, another way to kind of get a crash course and a lot of volume of doing stuff is to just, well, let's put a hundred of them in one day. Okay. So again, without those guys that just allowing me to go kind of absorb and do everything that I wanted to do, no way I'd be here. Well, I spent the next, oh, probably year, year and a half, went to the Woodlands Country Club as an assistant and found out very fast that my time in the golf management side of running a club, done. I am out. So I finally decided, you know what? Kevin at the time had had another guy working with him um, that was kind of an, an understudy and helping him do a lot of stuff. Well, that guy was actually taking another job. He's a really good friend of mine. Um, his name is Jason Johnstone. 
great player, taught me a lot. Well, he decided he was going to go take over a family business. So Kevin asked Jason, hey, do you have anybody that might want to come fill your spot? Well, Jason immediately said, well, I think Alan would be great to come over with you. And I'm not sure he's extremely happy with where he's at. So Jason called me and, um, and I, I'd known Kevin. So Kevin called me too. He said, Hey, come over and have a conversation with me. So this would be late 2002. Um, Kevin goes, well, I'd love to have you if you can, I can't pay you anything from a standpoint of like, I, I can't give you a salary. I can't do any of that. Um, here's the percentages of your lessons that you get to take. Do you want to do it? Well, came home, talked to my wife, um, and I'm trying to remember if we were even married at the time. We were engaged. I do remember that. I, I'm not sure if we were married yet. I think we got married later that year. And I said, hey, I've got this opportunity. I can go teach full time. But in the beginning of this thing, like, I'm not going to be bringing any money home. I literally have no book. Okay. I had, I did have a little bit of a book. I brought some of the, the juniors and some of the kids over with me from, um, from the Woodlands Country Club. They came back over to Cypress, so it started working with us. And then we worked there for another, I guess, four or five years. And I finally convinced Kevin that, okay, we've got to, we've got to move someplace that's in a little bit, maybe bigger golf market. Um, and at the time, uh, the Woodlands Country Club was owned by a different company and they opened the door to us. So Kevin's reputation was already good enough. My reputation was building. So they liked what we were doing and they allowed us to come in there and, and create and build what's now called the golf performance center at the Woodlands Country Club. Uh, again, now all of a sudden we've got a massive membership and it's a golf community for those that don't know the woodlands like it may be the most into golf community of any place that i've ever seen in the in the country um so i got to spend a lot of time there and there's a bunch of kids got to spend a lot of time with a bunch of good players got to spend a time with, with a bunch of tour players even when we were at cypress what i think one of the things that i was always very fortunate with is beyond the 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 Kevin and, and those guys that I got to spend a lot of time with, I got to spend a lot of time around some really, really good players very early on in my teaching and coaching. So, man, I, I used to just sit there and watch them. I'd just soak in everything I could. I'd ask them all the questions that I could ask. Found out pretty quickly there's some questions you don't ask an elite player. Um, but I got to hang out with them a bunch. And then it just kind of progressed, progressed along. Um, EJ, Kim, and Ben Wellman actually worked with us at the Woodlands Country Club. And then in 2015, uh, the three of us decided that we wanted to kind of branch off and, and start our own, our own golf academy. Um, to, to no ill will of anybody else that was at the Woodlands, we just kind of saw ourselves with a little bit different direction in what we wanted to do in the game and, and instruction. Uh, and it was just a little bit different than what they, um, what was being created or what they wanted to create the woodland. So that's fine. We decided that we wanted to kind of split off and kind of go our separate ways. And, and we did. So in 2015, we were lucky enough. Um, um, goodness, I can't think of his, uh, Tom Marty at Wood Forest Golf Club uh, was very gracious to us, let us come out. Uh, we invaded their space for for a few years. Again, it allowed us to grow 
It allowed us to kind of create that brand of Access Golf Academy. And uh, again, I, I couldn't imagine doing it with 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 two other guys. They're amazing. Um, I love them. I would do anything for them. Uh, I think they would do the same for me. And I, I think, Chase, you got to see that in the way that our environment looked and the way that we dealt with each other. It was, hey, we weren't scared to say the tough things when we needed to, but at the same time, we, we truly do. Uh, love each other and we do anything for each other and 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 evident you you understand our business relationship that the three of us actually have which i don't think happens anywhere else in the world um so it's very very unique and uh, so we spent a few years at wood forest and then we were fortunate to uh, to get to move over to to black horse which allowed us to move a little bit closer into the city it allowed us a little bit bigger facility uh, and it was a, a, a semi-private facility, so the public access was was much easier. Where our the end of our time at Wood Forest, they were starting to move into a fully private model, which kind of moved out of what we needed to needed to do. So, long story there of how we got to get to how I got to where I am. But um, I guess at the end of the day, it's being very fortunate to have hung around people like. Kevin and Kelly Walker and Christina Martinez and um, all the people at the Woodlands that allowed us to come over there and all of our students that allowed us to probably screw them up a little bit before we helped them get better. And then getting to hang around people like you, Chase, and you, Raymond, that like, it just, God, it's amazing. It's an amazing industry that we're in. Now that I'm noticing as you're detailing your history there that you have some threads that lend themselves to teaching well. So, I'm seeing that in your childhood, at least in your early adolescence, where your parents are owning this motorcycle shop, there had to have been, and correct me if I'm off course, but there had to have been an emphasis on learning because you clearly have a passion for learning, not just I need information, but the process of gathering that, the trial and error involved, the asking questions and trying to get it right rather than necessarily wanting to be right. There's a ton of that in you, you know, and that must have started with some parents who were like, Hey, here's some motorcycles and not just don't screw them up, but like, let's learn about them. And then in your golf history, there's a ton of places where you had an open playground in a couple of different places, not just to yeah. fit, literally play golf, but also to learn about golf where you have time and space to explore and figure out what works for you and what doesn't and learn from some really influential people for you. But that all starts with you being really open to, a learning process. And I'm just wondering, like, where did you, where did you develop that most? So there's the, the two people that probably shaped everything that I've done in my life from the standpoint of the learning are my dad and my brother. So I was a bit of a, of a, of an oops child. Um, I'm 12 years younger than my brother. Uh, almost 14 years younger than my older sister. So in a in a fantastic way, when I grew up, I almost had two fathers and two mothers. And as a kid, there was nobody I wanted to be more like than my big brother. He was everything, right? So he had all the great attributes of my dad, but yet he was closer to my age. He was hip. He was cool. Had all that stuff going. And uh, so I wanted to be my brother bad. I'm not sure I've ever told him that. I probably I probably should. 
Um, but my dad was very much a figure it out guy. He, everything that he did in his life was very much, I don't want to use the word self-made. I'm going to go self-initiated. Uh, cause even he would tell you that he had a lot of people to help him along the way, but it was self self-initiated. He was not going to take no as an answer. Um, he was not going to say, oh, that's broken. Okay. Well, let's just shove it aside. No, his was all about when he first started, well, he didn't have any money. So if it was broken, I got to fix it. Um, he built this business from, from nothing. He grew up with not very much money. Uh, he grew up in a, a, a single parent household because his father had passed away at a young age. So there was just, and he was the youngest of four kids. So my guess is he got, he got bullied. He got beat up on lot by his, by his older, older siblings. And then there was just an essence of, well, he got crash course into being an adult, probably far sooner than he needed to. Um, I'm trying to remember how old my dad was when his father passed away, but it must've been maybe 10. Um, and because that there wasn't a lot of money, my dad at those ages was already having to go to work just like the rest of his siblings. So that stuff got passed on to us. Fortunately, I wasn't forced to work because I had to provide for the family, but I was shown what work meant. My dad was one of those guys, um, because he wanted the business to, to succeed so, so badly. You know, he was up in the morning. He's there all day. I can't tell you how many times we got home at 10 or 11 o'clock and working the whole time. And so in his business, it was, he sold motorcycles, but he was also the main mechanic for making sure that they were ready to go. Well, he taught my brother and I all of that. I remember, I still remember this and I, I hope I never forget it. I'm probably 10 or 11 years old. And I'm working, it's probably the summertime. I'm working with my dad at the, one of the shops was in, in Brenham. And the other one was actually a Harley dealership in um, Bryan College Station. It was called Aggie Land Harley Davidson. You know, Harley dealerships, you get your normal business people that come in there. And then you get some, you get some pretty rough dudes that can walk through there sometimes. Well, I got used to be around everybody as a kid, which is probably also why I get along with, you know, many people now. It's like. Hey, that's fine. That's the way I grew up. Well, I remember working in what we had was a, a parts department and my dad's probably either with a customer, you know, selling something or, or he's probably in the shop working on something. Well, this big, big, bad biker guy kind of walks in and he goes, Hey, I need such and such part for, um, for this. So I said, and he's like, is there anybody here to help me? I'm like, I'll take care of you, sir. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah, what do you need? So I had to figure out what model motorcycle he had, what year it was. And then I got to go pull these old little microfish things out that you have to put in a machine, blow it up. You go look at all these numbers. And I remember the, the Harley part numbers being, uh, I remember them being like 10 digits long. Well, my dad would never let me write it down. So if I had to go look up a part number, it was, okay, I got to remember that 10 digit part number for the next probably 30 seconds for me to walk back there. And I can't tell you how many times when I first started, I'm like, oh God, it's got the number. I go back in there. I go to grab a piece of paper. No, no, no. You got to learn. That was his way of teaching me how to pay attention to what's going on in front of you to see the numbers and do all that stuff. And uh, anyway, that, that customer walked away pretty happy. And I think he even 
was pretty shocked that it all went that smoothly. Didn't need an adult in there. Mind you, there's probably some labor laws against having an 11-year-old working in there. <laughs> Technically, since I wasn't getting paid. but you know, I was going to say, not if you're not paying them. Well, <laughs> that's right. Right. So, so that type of environment, I was around with my, my dad and then my brother, and I got to watch them figure more stuff out yeah. than any maybe two humans I've ever been around. And then when it came old enough for me to start racing, the only rule whenever I started racing is my dad and my brother both said, the only way that you're allowed to race is if you can take care of your own equipment. One bike, yeah. So resource, yeah. So resourcefulness, responsibility, and learning. You know, you the phrase you were using is figuring it out, which learning to a large degree is. That was modeled for you from a young age from two really important, for lack of a better phrase, adult men in your life. Yeah. And and no, I think one of the things too, as a, you know, in my in the motocross world, it's so similar to golf, like. Yeah. You know, when we, when we get to a new track and you're trying to figure out lines and you're trying to figure out how to take these, you know, the different jumps and the landings and the way that the kind of corners are working and the berms are working, like you fail a lot. Like my brother used to say, and I'm sure he got it from somewhere else that the phrase was, if you're not crashing, you're not trying. Yeah. So it was okay for us to, to fall. Right? So you you Which, had the free you had the freedom to make some mistakes if that contributed to toward learning. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. So it makes sense to me then why you um, were willing to take some risks earlier in your career to not just establish access, but also to move across somewhere to start something new, to start something new, to go somewhere where you don't have a book, and perhaps you've got fiance wife in tow, where that. Well, we'll figure it out. We'll get resourceful. We'll learn it. And it's, this is a risk that takes in order to be successful. And it's okay to fail if we're failing forward. I can see why the trajectory of career, your career has followed how it has and how access has also built that stable foundation of, you know, students. Because if you're bringing that type of uh, learning mentality and, hey, let's make some mistakes along the way and that's okay, I can see why that's a place where kids get better pretty fast. Absolutely. And then we've, yeah, we've yeah. always wanted to leave it, leave it open to where, and, and like the parent education is probably the, the, the biggest piece in, in letting them know that we are not creating perfection here. If, if you're looking for me to try and get rid of every bad shot that your child is hitting, we are not the right place for you. But if you want us to help your child understand how to maybe get better at it so that it doesn't happen as often, and that it's okay for it to happen, that anybody that's good at anything in the world and in life, if they are not failing, I'm going to tell you it was handed to them. Yeah. I, uh, just as a side, I just want to um, piggyback off of that. I had a, a mentor in college talking about performance psychology, and he was saying one of the things you notice about people who are really successful is they actually fail more than people who uh, are afraid to take those risks. And he said, like, if you haven't really in a substantial and consistent way failed in your life, you're probably not taking enough risk. Not that we're telling people that you should fire at every flag, cut every corner or bet all your money on black. But there is something to be said about like, if I'm not willing to fail enough, it's hard for me to learn and get better. Chase and I have talked about this in previous episodes where our brain learns from error really efficiently. 
provided we're not taking that error personally. And so I can see in your past where you were given the freedom to make mistakes. My guess is you learn from them really fast because you weren't taking them personally. And if you um, share that environment with people, especially young kids who oftentimes are scared of making mistakes, there's a lot of freedom in there to be able to learn it and get better fast. Yeah, and I think you know one of the one of our roles as as coaches at at, at Access Golf Academy. So myself, Ben, EJ, Sean, um, Casey, like our job is not to get rid of failure in an athlete. Our job is to help the player understand that there is an answer when they fail. Yeah, right. So whether it be you know you made a comment, you know we're not telling people to go fire at every pen, but how do we learn that we shouldn't fire at every pin? Well, we first go fire at every pin. Yeah. Right? Like, and then you realize, oh, wow, that that really wasn't that bad of a shot. And it's now ended up in a really bad spot. I think our job as a coach is to now be there as a support system and an experience system and a knowledge system so that they don't keep doing it. Yeah. It's not that we don't want them to do it because – you know, Chase and, you know, Raymond, you guys know, like we try to be preemptive sometimes and giving the kids some information of this is how you do it. How many times do they really listen the first time? They don't. They need to go have that fail or that bad shot, lose a golf tournament, whatever it may be. And then they go, ah, oh, you know what? Maybe this is what coach was talking about. And then we get to have a better conversation. about it. Yeah, no doubt. Go ahead, Chase. Um, Alan, when do you, when you're in the middle of a lesson, when do you know when to give them information, when to let them, let them discover? Man, I wish I knew the answer to that. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm very good at it. Um, so, when a when a new student comes in, I'm first trying to figure out why they're there. Um, I want to know if they're there because they chose to be there or if maybe they got brought by a parent and then I want to know, well, most people don't come see us because they're performing at their best. Yeah. Right. Let's be clear about that. So then I'm trying to figure out, okay, why is this person really here? Either something has happened recently or something's continuing to happen that makes them think that they need somebody like us. So once I can figure out what that is, well, then I want to try and figure out, well, does that have to do with the golf swing? Does that have to do with their psyche and mentality? Does it have to do with poor training or poor practice? Like, is it, are they getting too much information? What's going on here? Um, so I don't, I don't know if I really am very good at it as much as I guess maybe we've been doing it long enough to where there's just kind of been, I don't want to say intuition, but we've seen enough people come through our door that we can kind of go, uh, I think maybe I need to go down this route. Um, you've been around me enough, Chase. I am, I'm very honest. Um, I am going to say exactly what I think. I don't do it to hurt people's feelings on purpose. I do it to be completely honest. And unfortunately, sometimes you do have to expose Hey, you're just not as good as you think you are at this particular thing, but I'll be here to support and help you as much as you want me to. So I think if we can be honest in, in what we see, honest in 
you know, being able to gather some actual information. So if we can measure it, we'll measure it. If we have some sort of way of benchmarking or video or TrackMan or like 3D systems or whatever it is, I think that gives us good information so that we can always kind of rely on, on, on where our intuition's probably taken us. And then, God, to be honest, I think, man, I want, I want to see what a player does with the golf ball. Um, even if I get a, a 10 year old that, that comes in, like, I'm really curious if I just give them a task with the golf ball, can they do it? Right. Like, Hey, here's a, you pick whatever club you want. And I just want you to hit this ball and I want you to just, let's see how close you can get to land to that basket. We find out pretty quickly that even, even kids that don't know anything when they've got some athletic ability and they have the ability to kind of coordinate and let their eyes do some work. They're pretty damn good. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to do whenever I get a player in is, all right, how much of the athlete can I keep in there? And then how much do I need to add to this as the, the coach or the information giver? Um, and I don't want to say I'm trying to give as little information as I can. I'm trying to give information that's pertinent to them as much to them as I can. We also have a philosophy at Axis that, like, I, I get young kids in, and, you know, I, I can remember one in particular, you know, young man that I work with, his name is uh, name is Luke. He's going to be a heck of a player. He's a great young man. And I told him when he first came in, which he's uh, was 14 now. I remember, actually, we were looking at some videos today from, I think, 2020, and he may have come in before that, so 2019. Uh, so what is that four years ago? So he's 10 years old at the time, maybe nine years old. And I looked at him at that point and his mom and dad. And I said, Hey, I, I know you're only, however you are 10 years old. I'm not going to sit here and talk to you like you're a little kid. I'm going to speak to you like you're an adult. I'm going to have, we're going to have conversations like you're an adult. Doesn't mean I'm going to unload all the information on you and all the scary stuff like you're an adult but I'm going to speak to you like an adult so that you can learn how to have these conversations. Um, and we want them to know why things happen because to them, we want to know, we want them to know why things happen for them so that when they're under stress, it could be a golf tournament. It could be maybe even just in practice that because they know themselves and the whys of, of, of why some of those things happen. Well, Hey, now I've got an avenue to be able to make some decisions on my own and kind of, correct the path of this thing and on we go so yeah. did i answer your question yeah. yeah alan can you give us the nuts and bolts of your teaching or you might say coaching philosophy oh wow that's that's only that's only changed about a million times over the last however many years um coaching now for 23 years um God, if I could go, I, you know, I think all coaches say this. I wish I could go back and give all those students a better lesson. I don't want to give them their money back, but I do would like to give them a best, better lesson. Yeah, yeah. Um, coaching philosophy is this. At the end of the day, a, a player's got to be able to manage their golf ball. So I try to reverse engineer everything off of what the golf ball's doing. I've got a couple of things from a coaching standpoint that if, if a player can hit from a basic benchmark standpoint, there's just a few kind of technical spots. If they can hit those from a, a benchmark standpoint, man, I, I want to go out and hit golf shots. 
right? So whether it be getting on the golf course or whether it's even just on the range and, and, and creating these different scenarios where they can do some different stuff with the golf ball, whether it's changing the lie or changing the curve, change the trajectory. And then you start really figuring out, okay, these are the shots that I need to play golf with. This is what has to be done from a technical standpoint, from a geometry standpoint. Like it's, it's pretty clear. There's, there's very specific geometry for very specific shots. Well, if I can reverse engineer, these are the shots that the player wants or needs. This is the geometry that needs to be created. Their motion can either create it or it can't. If it can't, we'll work on it. If it can, I'm not going to talk about golf swing stuff. If they're already hitting benchmarks, I'm good. The only caveat in that is I don't like to see moves that can create what seems to me like an obvious potential injury. So if the motion looks healthy, they can create a couple of benchmarks and the geometry to hit shots. I really just love seeing players hit shots. Um, I was very fortunate one of those players that I got to hang around with whenever I was younger, um, his name was Craig Kanata. Uh, probably still to this day, one of the, the players in the game that taught me more than probably than anybody, and it was for a few reasons. He allowed me to caddy for him quite a bit. Um, I was actually on the bag for him whenever he won the Nationwide Tour Championship. Uh, this would be, must have been like 2004, 2005. That golf tournament was one of the greatest learning experiences for me as a coach. And I figured out pretty quickly that if your focus isn't on understanding how to manage your golf ball, then you are going down the wrong track. So the story on that one was, and I'm not sure if Craig's going to like me telling this story or not, but uh, too bad, Craig, here we go. We show up that week and he is hitting it amazing like he is hitting it the best i've ever seen him hit it and in all honesty craig was not ever known for hitting it good he was known as having one of the best short games and one of the best putters you'll ever see in your life and i'm pretty sure it's still pretty much that way today but that week was weird because he had just come off winning uh nationwide events in utah okay so he was feeling pretty good and he shows up there. We're in practice rounds. And I'm telling you, he is striping it, striping it. I've never seen him hit that good. I don't know that I've ever seen him hit that good since either. So we get there on Thursday. And this is the tour championship. So I can't remember. I think it's 50 guys in the field or something like that. So small field. So we get there on Thursday. Practice rounds went great. We got good strategies, all that good stuff kind of going on. And uh, Craig was always very very gracious and open to let me kind of be involved with him until we got to the putting green. Leave me alone. Well, we get there on Thursday morning and man, he's hitting it good again. He's warming up. He's hitting it great. We get on the golf course and I would tell you that he hit it very well that entire round. We shoot 73. We shoot one over par hitting it probably the best I've ever seen him hit it. And for the first time ever, his short game or his putter, because he didn't miss many grains, his putter just did not look great. Didn't look terrible. He just didn't make anything. 
Um, I think he three putted once, which I can count on one pin how many times I've ever seen the guy three putt. Um, and then he just didn't make enough, enough putts, and he and he hit it pretty well. Well, then we get to Friday. As good as he was hitting it the rest of the time, we show up on Friday. It may be one of the worst ball striking exhibitions I have ever seen by a professional golfer to this day. He's handing me got the clubs back, and I'm wiping ball marks off of these things that are not even on the grooves. And I went, you've got to be – I was about to throw one of those words in there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You've got to be kidding me. Like, this is impossible. So now I'm going, all right, like, I can't be swing coach here because it's very clear. I can see him making all these rehearsals. He's trying all this stuff. And I'm like, hey, uh, Craig, let's – let's, uh, um, and it's – Oh, let's, hey, let's hit a couple golf shots. Hey, Craig, show me a golf shot. Oh, yeah, I don't want to hit a golf shot. Man, I, I just want to find the center of the face. I'm like, well, none of this other stuff you're doing is working, so let's just take a chance. Let's just hit a golf shot. Hey, do me a favor. Hit one that starts over there and then kind of goes over there. And he did. Okay, hit one over there. It starts and goes over there. And then he did it. And then he kind of, he did probably what I would have done. He started to ignore me. Uh, and then he went back into his little technical hole where he was trying to fix all of his golf swing stuff and was just hitting it terrible. And I'm like, this is, this is going to be really bad. Like this, this is going to be on the sports center for the wrong reasons. Okay. This is going to be the first tour player to shoot 95. So I'm like, you know what? I got to get this guy off of this driving range. Like he, the, if you've ever been to Houstonian, that's where the golf tournament was, which is now called Blackhawk. That driving range, I'm not kidding if I told you it's 150 yards wide. He was hitting drivers that did not touch the driving range. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but not too much. So I'm like, I got to get this guy around the greens. I got to get him in his safe space. So we go over to Chipping Green. I'm like, here we go. Grab him his wedge. Chunk, chunk, skull. I went, oh, my gosh. It's not 95 anymore. It's 105. So I'm like, okay, now I got to get him away from the chipping green. We run over to the putting green. Like, we're running into our tee time now. Like, we literally are going to get penalized for not getting to the tee on time. So he walks over to the putting green. He always hit these long putts first. And I'm like, oh, that looked pretty good. But then he likes to hit short putts. Like, he'll hit these, like, two or three, three or four footers that he'll hit literally right before he walks to the tee. And I'm looking at, like, we're literally, we're one minute away. The guys are about to start calling names on the first tee. I'm like, Craig, I'm going to the tee. So I turn around as he's hitting those putts from four feet. He doesn't even hit the hole. And I'm like, maybe I should just walk past the tee and see if I can find the parking lot. But I love the guy. He's amazing. So we walk over the first tee, and I try to get Craig into it. And, and again, I wouldn't have listened to me either. I didn't know anything, right? But I'm trying to get out of it. And this is where I kind of learned that having your brain in the right spot and being able to kind of rely on what you've done in training, but you've got to put the right intentions, intentions into it was very important. So he gets up on the first hole at the Houstonian. There's bunkers down the right. And pretty much you could, you could hit it as far as you wanted to left, right? All right, Craig, he liked hitting this little fade off the team. Hey, Craig, let's just start this thing down that left side. Let's just kind of move it over there. And I didn't want to say, 
let's do everything we can not to hit in that bunker over there. But that's kind of what I was doing, right? So sure enough, he's not listening, hits this little block slice over into the bunker, uh, plugs it in the bunker. Like we have to chip out sideways, the lie is so bad. Uh, I remember the first round into that hole, we we probably hit a wedge or a nine iron. Well, after hitting in the bunker and then having to hit it just straight sideways, now I, I think we're hitting like a seven or seven iron in the green. Kind of half lays aside over that one, wasn't really intent on what he was doing. Walks up to the putting green and makes like a 45 footer for par. I'm like, oh man, okay, maybe it's maybe it's not gonna be that bad today. If we can just get him to do that a little bit, we'll be okay. Second hole at the Houstonian, water down the left, you got the world down the right. Matter of fact, everything's stadiums back into the fairway off the right. Water down the left. That's the only place you can't play golf from, right? And there's just one lonely tree that sits next to the water. Well, he hits such a poor drive, and it's so close to the water. I still can't believe it didn't go in the water. That's He mishit it just bad enough to where it couldn't get all the way there. Well, we're now far enough left that we can't even go right of the tree to lay up. He has to take it over the water, around the tree, just to lay up. And let me tell you something. He flushed it. It was absolute. I mean, just I'm like, wow, that was a golf shot. I don't. I can't remember what he hit. Maybe a five iron that must have curved forty yards, dead out of the center of the face. Beautiful looking shot. Walks down there. I think he's got probably around ninety yards in. Which now we're getting into Craig's wheelhouse. Pulls wedge out, knocks it up there about five feet, makes a putt. He's hit one functional golf shot in two <laughs> holes, and he's now one under par. So. We're good. There's a little bit of a walk from, from the second hole to the third hole. And I, I look at Craig, and, and Craig's a very Christian man, well-spoken. I can't say that I've ever heard him actually say uh, a profane word or cuss word ever that I've been around him. Well, I do say a few. So I immediately look and I go, what in the are you doing? Like, this cannot last for the day. Like, I don't even remember how old I was. I must have been 25 or something like that. I'm like, I can't handle this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a heart attack out here. Like, you're better than this. I'm like, you need to hit a golf shot, and I want you to stop messing with your golf swing. Like, let's go. And he looked at me, and again, Christian man, you know, doesn't doesn't really tolerate that kind of words and language. He looked at me with a look, and I didn't know if I was about to be fired. Or I didn't know if it was a look of, please help me. Um, I'm ready to listen. We go to the third hole, and sure enough, he picked the shot. Beautiful. Like just this big, you know, crazy slice out there. But it was fantastic because it was what he chose to do with the golf ball. Sure enough, walks down there. He's got another wedge in his hand. Knocks it up there about 10 feet. Holds a putt. We're two under par, and if you would have saw him on the range, you would have sworn your life that we were going to WD. Like it was just, it was bad. Go to the fourth hole. We start talking about this shot and I can see him kind of like not listen to me again. Like he was getting back into his deal. He was messing with his golf swing. Pin was tucked over on the right and he hits this shot up there. And as soon as he hit it, we're like, well, that that's at best. That's a bogey because you can't hit it over there. And before I can say another word to him, he turned around, looked at me and goes, I got it. Tossed the club back to me, grabbed his wedge out of the bag, 
almost holds out this little pitch shot, which he had no business even coming close to getting it up and down, and he almost makes a damn thing. Makes par. We go to the next hole, and I almost didn't have to say another word to the rest of the day other than, hey, what are we doing with this golf ball? Take a guess at what he shot that day. 65. 64. Yeah. 64. Um, he got done with the round of golf, and I'll never forget it. This is when John McGinnis was just getting into, like, XM Radio, I believe, or something like that. They kind of went, oh, Craig, hey, man, great plan, good round. Man, you must have hit it so good today. And Craig went, Pfft. if you guys had any idea the stuff that was going on in my head and how bad things really were, he goes, if you just saw my warm-up, you would have swore there was no way I could break 85. And he just got out there. And I'm going to say out of sheer determination, probably – you know, not wanting to fail, you know, not wanting to embarrass himself. Probably all those things probably led into it. Um, and he also knew that if he finished top three that week, he was actually going to get his PGA Tour card. So there was a lot of stuff going on that week. Yeah. Um, and he went on to win that golf tournament. And I'll say that the best round of the week was probably the next day when flipped and golf course got really hard, got really cold. And uh, he put up a heck of a round, ended up chipping in the last two holes to win that tour championship over Matt Kuchar. Hmm. So one of the best learning experiences was fantastic. Yeah. So a couple of questions on that. And, and I, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, what are some things that you teach more than other coaches you would say? And, and one of those is obviously curving the golf ball. Do you, do you do it for survival? Do you do it to keep the golf swing under, like I always tell players, if you can, if you can hook it and slice it on command, your golf swing is pretty neutral. If you get to a point you can't do it, obviously you're too too shifty one way or the other. What are your reasons for for doing it? Because in that world, like Craig needed survival. He he curved it to survive right there because he he couldn't do anything else. So it, are those your reasons for for being such a fan of curving it both ways? So the the first reason why I want it because it helps me understand from a a, a technical skill in geometry. Does this player understand how to manage? A golf club okay so a couple of my uh, benchmarks are one i don't ever want to see um how would i phrase it a lot of players tried to stand perfectly square into a golf ball and then they try to hit these perfectly straight shots and then where i think people mess up whenever they start trying to learn curve is they're still very very square which means now they're making these really weird kind of geometry offsets so I don't think I'm any different than, than than you or any other coach where I do like the geometry to look pretty simple compared to themselves and their body. And then I want the players to understand that they can change the geometry by changing where their body's pointing, right? Um, so I do it because I think it helps clean up motions. It helps expose where some of the big, big errors are uh, from a learning and training standpoint. Not to mention, I think that, I mean, for me, it was just more fun, right? Like it, it tapped into that creative side. It's like, you know, people come in all the time and they were like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to curve it. I just want to hit it straight. I'm like, oh, so you want to survive like the pitcher that only has a fastball down the middle. Sorry, pal. That is not going to work. If it doesn't work out there, it's not going to work out here. And the reason why is they have a pretty clear environment that's pretty much the same all the time our environment is going bananas all the time. So 
I use it from a training. I use it from a creativity. We use it because that's how we manage all those crazy variables that we deal with, whether it's why or when, and pen positions and all this stuff. But I think you're right. It's also great because it helps us survive. If if a player's out there and all of a sudden all they've got is this kind of rope-a-doke rope uh, hook going, man, if they understand the geometry and how to get that, they can get rid of that. They can get rid of it right then. They don't have to wait the entire round. So, wow. uh, man, it's it's always a it's a constant conversation. Um, I know that there's a lot of coaches that that don't like curve. Um, I think curve is it's really ultimately what tells me how good somebody is going to be. Um, it scares me when I hear players come in or coaches talk about trying to zero out things, and trying to hit these straight balls. Like there's no like if there's one word that I hate in, in, in our golf industry, it's the word consistent. Like you're trying to create consistency in a world that's ever changing and inconsistent. No, I don't want consistency. I want predictability. And I want you to be able to predict what your golf ball is going to do under all this crazy stuff that you're having to deal with. And Oh, by the way, I'm going to put a little bit of stress on there and a little bit of anxiety on you because you actually want to play well in this golf tournament or you need to make a cut and you got to make a check or man, it gets me into a tournament. So there's, I think, I think curve is the foundation of what I do because it, it helps me reverse engineer a lot of what I need to do for the players in their motions uh, and how they need to train going forward. So I'd say curve is probably the, the number one thing. Chase, uh, and Alan, let's shift here a little bit to club fitting, because Alan, I know this is an area that you are particularly in tune to. Pardon my pun. It was definitely intended. Um, tell us a little bit about that. You know, Club tuning and um, club fitting is something that is common for, at golfers at most levels, and you can do it in a whole lot of different places. But for those who are in the know, that it's not as simple as lie angle and shaft length and so on and so forth. So um, give us the abridged version of what club fitting is, if it's going to be really effective for somebody. Well, let me give you a little bit of the background of how I even got into it. Um, I think coming from that avenue of being a bit of a mechanic, um, like my brother and my dad taught me, like there was always this, um, gear thing you know i'm, I'm a yeah. bit of a gearhead at the end of the in the day well whenever i went to arizona i had just bought myself a brand new set of golf clubs uh with the first brand new set of clubs i'd ever had bought them my own money uh it was a set of ben hogan blades which i had no business hitting but i was in love with these things they were the most beautiful things i'd ever seen well i got to school and there was a kid there that obviously had more money than sense and he kept trying to off to buy them from me. And I kept saying no. Well, he finally offered me an amount of money that I could not say no to. Like he, he gave me twice the amount that I paid for. So I went, perfect. This is a great opportunity. I've got a little bit of extra cash now. I'm going to go get a club fitting. I've never had a club fitting. I'm going to go get a club fitting. So I go see a guy about a club fitting and he gives me all these specs when we get done. Like this club fitting for a set of irons took 20 minutes. And he hands me the sheet like, okay, here you go. Here's your sheet. And I had one simple question. This is all I asked. Can you tell me why I need these specs? Because I thought I was a pretty normal 
like human being. You know, I'm not Jack and the Beanstalk tall like Chase. Like I'm I'm five ten. I'm very normal at most of the things I've ever done in my life. But yet this guy's now giving me golf clubs that are a half inch long, and I remember them being two degrees upright. I'm like, that makes sense. I want to know why he was fitting me into this. Was this a band-aid for something that I need to go get better? Or is this truly what I need? And now I can just go learn how to make the ball do what I want to with this. Well, because of the specs are so odd, I was like, there's, there's got to be something going on in my emotion here that is not making sense. Well, even at that time, I was, I was a bit more of a, of a fader. I just kind of, it's just a shot that I hit. Well, Chase, as you know, as we get a little too fady sometimes, we start, the ball can come off the toe. Well, so what this fitter did is he simply just wanted to alleviate the toe. So he made the club longer, which was going to work for about the time of the fitting. That was it. I was going to readjust at some point. And because he saw the ball moving left to right, he made it upright so it wouldn't curve to the right. Not once did Avery ask me, do you want this golf ball curving left to right? How good a player are you? And are you able to hit the shots that you need to, even though it's coming off the toe? Now, I agree. I don't need to hit it off the toe. But making that golf club longer is not going to do it. Well, that opened up Pandora's box on trying to figure out all the variables that I could because now I was going to have to go fit myself and got very fortunate. And I wish I could remember his name. I can't remember his name. Guy that I met in Phoenix. He was an ex European tour player. He taught me a massive amount about what golf clubs do, whether it be line length and different shafts. And we didn't have nearly the, the array of shafts then that we do now, but even already then, he was giving me a little bit of information of, well, this is why you see this. This is why the ball goes to the right. This is why it goes to the left. And then I, I coupled that with what I was learning about golf swing stuff and the geometry kind of world of the golf swing stuff. And I was just starting to put them together. So my niche when I first came back to Texas was I was one of the few, at the time, few teachers who were very involved and in, into club fitting. And now there's quite a few. Um, like I'll, I'll, I'll say that being a, a teacher helped me club fit better. Being a club fitter helped me teach better because I understood the synergy that needed to go between them. And that's part of the why Kevin wanted me to come over there is he was busy enough in what he was doing. He didn't want to jump into that club fitting world. So I kind of took care of that for him. Uh, so again, got to be around a lot, a lot of really elite players, club fitting golf clubs for elite players, which I probably didn't have any business doing yet at the time, but they helped me kind of crash course. And I was very open to learning what they wanted the golf ball to do. And then I was trying to figure out how to turn the knobs to get that golf ball to actually do what they wanted it to do. And then every once in a while, Kevin would kind of go, Hey, do you think that that's, uh, um, a proper fit or do you think that that's a band-aid for something we need to address and then we got to have these great conversations of well you know i think it's a little bit of both or no i think that's more of a band-aid okay well let me have a conversation with the athlete first and figure out okay are you willing to go do the work and do you want to go do the work and become more efficient yes i do okay well we're not going to do the clubs yet we're going to stick with your clubs make some minor adjustments we're going to send you down the road with some stuff to work on We'll come back in six months 
amongst some lessons and stuff too. And then we can readdress, hey, are we ready for new clubs? And then we won't have to see such stuff that just doesn't look like it kind of fits in the box very well. Um, we do things out of the box, but at the same time, like the more and more I was actually talking to um, Chuck Cook uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, Chuck's been a great resource for me amongst uh, a lot of other golf professionals, Dick Harmon and uh, Jim Hardy and all those guys. But um, I was talking to, to Chuck the other day. I'm like, guy, you know, the more and more I look at golf swings trying to find what makes them unique, I'm actually starting to find that a lot of the really good ones kind of look the same in certain areas. So we remove ourselves from the style race, which I think, you know, if we're not careful, our instruction gets too much down the style race and our equipment stuff gets too much down the style race versus, hey, there's just a few things that have to happen in order to hit certain golf shots that you want. And man, that golf club's either helping or it's not helping. So I guess our philosophy on club fitting is a little bit different than some. Like I'm, I, I'm a big shaft guy from a standpoint of, I think the, you know, we've always been told that the, the shaft of the golf club is the engine of the golf club. Well, I'm going to give you a difference of opinion. I'm going to go, I don't think that the shaft is the engine of the golf club. I think the, the shaft is the steering wheel of the golf club. It's the one that's helping us kind of create direction for that race car. The head itself is the engine of that of that golf club. So we use the shaft as a bit of the steering wheel or being able to hit the curve type shots that we want. Or even for those that if they come in and want to hit one shot, hey, I'm fine with that too, as long as it's got some sort of predictability in what it's going to do. And then we fit to fit to that. And then we're using the head to primarily control what do we need from a, a ball speed perspective or what do we need from a launch and spin perspective? I think that the time that I've gotten to spin around talking to engineers like all the guys at, at Ping amongst some of the others at Titleist and all them, the more that I found out that I can far affect the trajectory of a, of a shot way more with changing center of gravity loft more so than I can change that with the shaft, but I can change direction more with shaft and lie angle than I ever could with changing something in the, or doing anything in the head. So that's kind of the way that we do it. And we try to make sure that, you know, all of our coaches, including Chase, uh, when, when Chase was there with us, we all clipped it. Like I, I remember one of the things that Kevin told me early on, he said, Alan, one of the ways that you're going to be able to, uh, to separate yourselves from, from the others is there's not many coaches at club fit and there's not many club fitters that, that coach. He said, so if you can become proficient at both of them, he goes, you're going to set a mark for yourself. That's, that's a little bit different. And I'm very proud of the fact that, um, BJ and Ben are that way. Sean's that way. We've also got a full-time club fitter on, on our staff now, Casey, Casey understands kind of what we do from a coaching standpoint. And then getting to watch you when you were with us as well, Chase, like you, you you've got a great mind for doing both as well. Talk about you helped me a lot with shafts and what the the tips do and and the role of the shaft and and I was more under the impression of kind of what you hear from shaft manufacturers of if you don't want it to go left get a really stiff tip if you want it to you know uh, if you want it to if you want to draw it get a softer tip or you want to hit it higher get a softer tip and you kind of quickly pushed back on that and I was I was 
Um, honestly, I was super impressed with your knowledge of shafts. So again, most of our listeners will be listening and not watching this. So if you talk about droop and deflection, all that stuff, you'll have to kind of discuss it a little bit more, but what's the role of the shaft and how does your way of talking about it or fitting it maybe differ from the rest of the, the fitting world? So I guess I would, I would, I would kind of confirm here. I'm, I'm not saying that the shaft does not control trajectory. I'm just saying that that's, that's not its main job. Okay. So I'll tell players a lot of times that I can't change, I can't change the trajectory that you want. So if a player comes in and they've got a golf club, let's say they're hitting it functionally pretty well. Like it's got the right predictable ball flights to it. They can put it in play a lot. And then we get players that come in and go, God, just doesn't seem like it's quite spinning enough. And I'm curious of what shaft can help me do that. And my comment back to them is, well, I can find you a shaft that, that will spin it more. But I don't think it's going to go where you're looking anymore. As soon as I yank on this knob, this knob, it's going to change this knob, whether we like it or not. I said, so if a player can come in and they have a shaft that they can hit, they hit it solid, they can control their flights in, in the basic form the way that they need to, and we want to start changing trajectory, well, I'm either going to change the center of gravity of the, the head that's in their hand, or I'm going to change the loft of whatever's in their hand. That's how we're going to change the trajectory. Now, if I've got a player that comes in and says, hey, I'm hitting it the trajectory that I want, but it's going too far right or left, what shaft can I get? Okay, double-edged sword. Yes, I can fix your direction or make it better. I can get the dispersion down, but don't think that I'm not in the process now going to gank on that ball flight the, the the flight that you think you like so much because as soon as you know somebody got one going too far to the right that's typically going to be spinning a little bit more the launch is probably a little bit more relative to maybe some of what their body and stuff's doing but so we can see it both all sorts of trajectories but let's just say namely to the right clubs too soft it's not catching up there's no catch up of the shaft well as soon as they, they come in and I get a shaft that can now catch up, well, that means there's some closure of the golf club the way that it needs to, which is going to reduce the amount of dynamic loft there is. Well, if I reduce the dynamic loft, well, now I've just immediately changed the spin. I've changed the spin to a drastic degree, and I've changed the launch angle probably some as well. A lot of people don't know that a, a degree of loft change has more effect on spin rate than it does the actual launch angle. So, you know, the, the spin rate can change, and I've seen it change up to five or 600 RPMs, but the launch angle will probably only change, if you're lucky, maybe a half a degree. Like, so changing one degree of actual loft does not have an immediate one degree change of, of, of launch angle. So it's all relative to some of the other things. And again, I wasn't smart enough to go say, hey, this is what it is. I was very fortunate to hang around some really smart people. So, um, you know, got to ask questions to guys like, you know, Marty Jertson at, at Ping and at the time, Jamie Pipes, um, who's now um, with uh, Artisan Golf, but he used to be with uh, UST. Jamie taught me a lot, helped me understand kind of the role of a, of a golf shaft. So the role of the golf shaft 
it is the timing mechanism to put the club head where you want it. Mostly has to do with left and right, but when you change left and right, it can also change the up and down. So player comes in and I'm going to do a fitting. I'm looking at shaft first, and then I'm going to start changing head or whatever it may be to change any trajectories that need to be done, which I think is very different than what most do in the, in the industry. So quick, quick follow up on that. So in basic generalities, I know my favorite sayings, people are messy. Everyone's a little different, but basic generalities. If you've got somebody, a good player that comes in and is fighting hooks and wants to eliminate the left side of the golf course, where are you going to start with shafts? Or you can even go the opposite. They're wanting to eliminate the right side. Where are you going to start with shafts? What are you looking for? Okay, so let's go with the, the left one first. And that's usually probably a good player miss. Um, you know, they, they start getting the club head there and club face there a little bit, a little bit too fast. Um, and this is the one that kind of bucks what, what, what the general public think of, of shaft flex, you know, most, most people start hitting a, um, a, a shot that's hooking too much or going too much to the left for a right-hander. They immediately start thinking that the shaft is too soft. Well, the reality is, is one of two things. Sure. It could be too soft which means now they've developed a reaction to soft, which is usually going to be, oh, club won't catch up. It's soft. It's staying behind me. All right, let me take care and flip that face over so I can get it caught up. So that'd be the overreaction to something being too soft. But that one's usually going to go both ways. It'll go right and left. And then you get that player, that good player that's coming in, and it's just going left. It's left. It's left. It's left. You look at the motion from a golf swing perspective, and you're like, yeah, I don't see a lot of left in the motion. Okay, this is a golf club issue. Well, then I can immediately go, all right, let me switch the shaft out. So I'm typically going to go softer. The first softer that I want to attack is probably more towards the head end. So a little bit tip softer. That's probably one of the easiest ways to keep a face from closing down too much. And then you have different styles of players depending on where they put the load in the golf club. So if you get a player that puts the load, almost kind of bounces it in the backswing, sure, too soft for them can't actually catch up too soon. Um, so you have to look at where they're putting energy, where the acceleration they, that they put on the golf club, the later of acceleration that they put or the more continued acceleration they put into it, soft goes right, too stiff goes left. Um, and then we kind of toy around with the head from there. So. It probably goes against it a little bit. And I think that's why some of these companies have done so great. So like um, every company has within a certain line of shaft, they have probably three different color models in that shaft. Well, really what they're doing is they're adjusting the steering wheel from a more right bias to a more left bias to one that they think is pretty neutral. Well, if, if you can create something that is creating neutral or what the, the golfers want in their shots, well, then the, all the launch and spin stuff comes down to the head. So I'm, I'm a big steering wheel guy for the shaft first. And I think that's why these companies got clever enough a few years ago and they went, God, we, we've got to make a shaft and we're not naive enough to think that this particular one shaft is probably not going to fit everybody. But if we can take what we love in this shaft and slightly alter these different characteristics in it for these types of players. Pretty simple. Too far right, too far left, or hey, I'm already kind of down the middle. 
and it works out pretty good. And every manufacturer has done that. And then one more quick follow-up, counterbalance. Counterbalance. So counterbalance is um, it's where you've got a little bit more mass towards the grip end of the golf club. So what that does is it changes the center of gravity of the entire club, moves it a little bit closer to the, to the grip or to the handle of the golf club. Um, if, and you can adjust some of that back if you change swing weights, because if I counterbalance a golf club, you will, re- you will lose or reduce the swing weight just a little bit. Um, but the entire, um, the intention of it was to allow for the golf club to be easier to catch up to the golf ball. So I'm not sure I ever really heard of counterbalanced 20 years ago. I think counterbalance has become a more important and needed aspect in the shaft as the golf clubs have gotten, frankly, too long. And as the club heads have gotten so big that you're moving the center of gravity of the head farther away from the shaft, golfer needs more and more help trying to catch that thing up. Uh, when I say that thing, I'm talking about the actual club head, club face. So a bunch of smart guys that are way smarter than me for sure figured out, man, if I can, if I can make this, this thing a little bit heavier here, it's going to make it a little bit easier to catch up down on top, at the bottom. And you can turn any shaft into more of a counterbalance shaft. I remember back in, uh, God, I remember it was late night, late, uh, so 2008, 9, 10, something like that. Or I remember Tiger, if you remember, he had a, he was playing a, a Diamanta, I can't remember if it was a blue or a white. Um, and it was his shaft that he'd been playing for a while. But if you really paid attention to it, and it must have been, I think he was still with Nike at the time, he had lead tape around the grip. Like, just below the grip. Well, all that was, was Tiger essentially turning his golf clubs into a bit more of a counterbalanced golf club. Well, as we know, you know, there were times when Tiger could could get, he was so fast with his body, he could get the club lost a little bit behind him and couldn't get it caught up. And in his, I think his words at the time, I remember him saying, well, when I can't get it caught up, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to be a, a big block. Or I'm going to do it with my hands, and I'm going to fix it, and this thing is going to go too far left. Uh, a lot of people don't know. I've heard stories about uh, Jack Nicholas's golf clubs from, you know, when Jack was was Jack, all of his golf clubs were were counterbalanced. They I can't remember if they did it with lead tape under the grips or weight in the shafts. I don't know how they did it, um, but he played counterbalance. Well, counterbalance was meant to help square a golf club up. Think so. Jack probably had a tendency where he felt like, even as a guy that wanted to cut it, sometimes he could get a little bit of a double cross cut going, start right, go right. So he used counterbalance to kind of fix it. It's also a really good thing to help return not only the face, but it returns the loft of the golf club. So it's also a way to get the ball to launch just a little bit higher, helps create a little bit more dynamic loft. So for some of our higher handicapped players that have a hard time getting the ball in the air or have a hard time getting the club face squared up, Counterbalance is a is a good a good route to go to be able to help them create proper dynamic law, square the face up. It's not a fix. It's a it's a, it's a helper. It shouldn't be what you use to fix it. It's a helper of trying to get things done the way they do. Alan, uh, you're talking steering wheel with the golf shaft here. Let's talk engine for a second. 
the trend engineering lately is that every any and every company is creating clubs and many of them are these clubs that are uh, much stronger lofts than have been traditionally and the trend is continuing how does that change uh, club fitting for you or or how does that uh, fit into this process where you're starting with shaft probably first most of the time and then you're moving to club head but the club heads now are different than they were before they're stronger the center of gravity is lower faces are faster and made out of uh different metals than they were even 10 years ago what's the evolution been like in the fitting process along with that a bit frightening um you know one of the things so we at, at our academy we're very fortunate that we've got a lot of we've got a lot of really good players running around um again all of our coaches do such a such a good job. I mean, every time you walk through the door, there's you're going to see two, three, four good players running around. They they might be over having contests with one another or whatever it may be there for a lesson. For us, being in that better player world, and when you've gotten to hang around enough tour players, you find out pretty quickly that all the things that the engineers do to sell golf clubs to our everyday golfer is actually what we try to get away from when we get into the golfer that's trying to be elite. So our everyday golfer, well, I think there's plenty of statistics that say if they can hit it farther, they're going to play better. So I don't disagree that some of these golf clubs are really good for them. What, what we don't like for them when it comes to some of the younger and the developing junior, even that developing young good player, is we want them to learn how to create all the shots and trajectories that they need to with a loft that we would call, I don't mind them being stronger than they were 25 years ago, but mm-hmm. I don't want them to be as strong as some of the modern day stuff. The thing that we lose when we create less loft is, sure, ball speeds go fast, right? Yeah, it's a great way to see the ball go far. The downfall is we also create lower launches and less spin. Well, now the way that the manufacturers fix that, they make the soles bigger, they make the heads bigger, they put that center of gravity down as far to the ground as they can so that you can at least get it launched in the air. So now we're creating, there's there's probably too many high launch, low spin irons where if you go watch really good players and elite ball strikers they're going to err on the spinnier side of equipment because for them, spin is an aspect of control. control. Now, too much spin can be detrimental when you get into really windy conditions, but we also believe that that's something that these young juniors need to be learning. I'm perfectly okay putting a junior, a 12-year-old, that wants to be a good player in the spinniest club head I can find the spinniest golf ball that I can find. And they will come back in at some point and go, Coach, man, I couldn't control my ball when that wind was blowing. I had a tournament down at Corpus Christi, and it was just blowing 20 at me constantly. Oh, perfect. Let's have a conversation. We can teach you how to change the loft for you as the athlete and the golfer. We don't need the golf club to do all of it because the detriment to that is now we can't stop it when it hits the green. Now when it's downwind, so as much as spin can hurt us into the wind, not having spin is maybe worse downwind. So we're 
we don't, um, how would I say, we don't, so we do have the luxury of selling golf clubs at our academy too. We just don't sell very many of those really hot ball go far club heads when it comes to, to irons. We're looking for the ball to be predictable. We're looking for the flights to be manageable. We want it to be able to perform into the wind, downwind, and the only way to do that is understanding how to, to change the dials on the, on the launch and spin. Not to mention turf interaction. When we get those really big golf clubs that are meant to kind of launch it high with no spin, you, there's really only one golf shot that you can hit with it. There's not a whole lot of versatility in it. Yeah. And again, you've heard me say that one of the things that we, we want all of our junior players and all of our developmental players, we want them to know how to purposely manipulate a golf club to create an effect that they need to create. I don't know why they need to create it. That's what golf gives us. It could be the lie or, man, I just, I played last week and the greens were like sponges, but man, I just went to this golf course and these things are bouncing off the back. Well, I give you something that's a hot rocket launching high in the air on a firm green. Whew. Hope your short game works. Yeah. All right. Last question before we get up against time here. Speed training is something that people are most amateur golfers are at least exploring. Many are getting into particularly competitive golfers at a young age. And quite frankly, there's quite a bit of data now that shows that if you're a competitive golfer and you're not training speed, you're probably losing yards and losing strokes. How does the progression of speed training some, let's say someone over their winter break goes and does a speed training system and they come back with, let's say with the driver, even though this is a little bit on the high end of the, uh, the curve here, let's say they come back with 10 extra miles per hour. How does that impact ball flight for whatever they have, or what would you expect to see? And then also what might a fitting, how might a fitting change based on just someone training speed? You're right. I do think that that speed training nowadays is becoming almost a, uh, uh, it's a must. If you're if you're not doing some sort of speed training, um, with the the disclaimer being, is my body ready to do yeah. speed training? So I've got another person that I've gotten to uh, become good friends with and gotten to, to hang around with a lot and learn a lot from. His name is Thomas Twitty. He's with E-Track. And I asked Thomas specifically, what are the red flags that I need to be looking at as a coach that say whether or not a certain typically your younger athlete, but I think this applies to anybody. When should I not be doing speed training? And he was pretty clear. He, uh, he basically said, if, if they can't control their arms under load, and he gave me a couple of little tests that we can do. If they can't control their arms under load, putting them into speed training will first make them worse. Yeah. Like they'll just completely lose where the golf club is. Okay. And then if they can't control their body very well, I'm just setting them up for injury. So I think speed training is a massively important thing that we must do. But I'll throw the, 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 the disclaimer for everybody that when you go do speed training, don't ever believe that you are isolating to only you're only training speed. You are altering the timing of the golf club and how it's going to get to a golf ball. You're altering where your energy goes when it comes to the golf ball. You're changing the way that the shaft is reacting, reacting so that you can get it to the golf ball. 
you're changing how the face is reacting because the shaft is reacting, which means now your golf ball is going in a different direction. Okay. So you'll see one of two things. If it's a really good player that's doing speed training, you'll see that their speed is going higher when you ask them to. But as soon as you get on the golf course, they go right back down to the other speed that they know because it's where their timing and the mechanism of the golf club in their body are getting where they need to at the right time. So a red flag for me is if I've if if we've proven that an athlete is now ready to do speed training, and then I see the athlete is getting faster, I can I can look at the numbers like the stack speed system is without question the best one that I've ever seen because of, of the it's all you know the algorithms that are creating the change in the program. I mean those guys are so ridiculously smart between Sasha McKenzie and and Marty Jurtson. It's an unbelievable fantastic tool. But if I see somebody I can look through numbers and I can see, man, their training's getting faster. But yet when we go to the golf course and I'm seeing really good shots, it ain't going any farther. Well, now I've got to figure out, okay, are they scared to use that new speed that they have, which happens plenty of time, especially when you get a, a competitive player that's playing at a high level, like it's like, they're never scared to investigate change, but at the same time, change scares them because it's going to change what the golf ball does and that's that's dangerous well then i gotta go okay is this a mental thing to where they're just scared to do it so we'll go out and try and play it for you and all right hey give me a couple no rules right if you hit one bad it's on me it's not on you okay give me everything you got well then that's the one that's going to go oh that exposes now the golf club the change in speed now is exposed what needs to change in the golf club. And typically when somebody's getting faster, well, they're going to make that shaft bend harder. Well, when they make the shaft bend harder and more, it doesn't want to catch up. So when somebody first goes through speed training, provided we see that like technically their arms don't look completely disorganized all of a sudden, but they can't seem to get the golf club caught up. Well, it only makes sense that we're probably going to have to make this thing either firmer or just change where it's firmer in the profile of the shaft. So it's a dangerous road to go down for sure, uh, because if you don't pay attention to the entire ecosystem of what creates that golf shot and you only go, well, I'm going to go speed training, uh, the, the rest of this thing's about to go south pretty, pretty quick and, and in a hurry. And I don't know about in your experience, Chase, but I don't know that I've ever seen or had anybody do speed training that didn't come back to me probably in the span of a month to two months that didn't look at me and go, Hey, I'm hitting fewer fairways. Yeah. I mean, if you're, That's part if of the you're, yeah. yeah, just the laws of physics dictate that if you add speed to something that is geared and tuned toward a certain speed, it's going to react differently, and then therefore the golf ball is going to be different too. So well, well, something. Real, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Then that's one of the reasons. Like one of the the groups down close to close to you, Alan Mach Three, had, has had a lot of success. And the first thing that they say is that it's a mindset thing. Speed's a mindset thing. You've got to you've got to give yourself permission to go try to hit it faster and understand that you're not be worried about what the consequences could be. And it, to your point, tour players can't can't or really good players can't always do that they don't they can't afford to 
Well, they mm -hmm. are banking their performance largely on predictability, right? Particularly predictability of their golf ball. And when you re add speed, you are now introducing uncertainty. Not that it can't be adjusted for. Again, there are plenty of really good players who have added speed, managed their course differently, managed their psychology differently, and tuned their equipment differently. And now speed has become a significant asset for them. But again, if you're going to start introducing speed in a, especially a systematically trained way where it comes faster than just naturally, maybe I go through puberty and it comes a little bit more gradually as my body grows and my swing develops, that's, that's more uncertainty very quickly relative to what most people are, um, are used to. And then therefore, as you said, Chase, the mindset behind it or your psychology that you bring to that uncertainty, if you're not, Chase have had, and I have had this conversation a million times, which is if you're not playing shots freely with whatever speed you have, by the way, you're not really sure what your equipment is actually doing for it, in which case then the tuning process becomes a little bit uh, muddied. And so, you know, I, I can resonate with what Alan said, which is like, yo, you got to turn a couple loose here so that we can actually see what your equipment is doing and, and what that speed is doing for you. So then you can tune your equipment, adjust your psychology, and then now you have an asset rather than something that you are protecting from, even though you're training it. Yeah, so, for sure. Like, yeah. I mean, okay. I've, I know I've, I've experienced it myself, like going through, you know, the stack system and, and kind of getting faster. And I did get faster for a while. This was pre-knee pre surgery time about a year ago. Um, but I got, I got quite a bit faster. I went from a guy that was, that was playing around probably 108 to where whenever I was in a speed session and then being able to hit balls on launch wire right after, right after I got it to one, 115 and almost got it to 116. Zero chance that I was going to play that when I got on the golf course, though, because yeah. even in those in those moments of doing those speed training, I gave myself permission to do the training and to go at it. But I had no idea how the mechanism was going to work. And consequently, that ball was going everywhere. Well, for a while there, I went from that low end that I was. Now I've got this higher end potential and you're going to play from somewhere in between those probably yeah, is where yeah. you ultimately go so yeah yeah okay alan uh tell the people where they can physically or digitally find you if they want to and to learn more from you as you have learned from so many others yeah so for you know um you know we, we've kind of got an open door for any 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 other teachers and golf professionals that want to want to come in and kind of hang out we we love having those people around there because we're going to learn something from them them as well. But uh, for all the, the people that are wanting to, to actually take instruction or, or club fitting, then we've got a website, axisgolfacademy.com, which is A-X-I-S golfacademy.com. And then we're on all the social media sites. Uh, as Chase knows, it's not because I'm on them. Uh, it's because the, the other guys in our group are – are uh, are into it and kind of smart enough to know how to handle it. I if I was in charge of doing it, there would be some really 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 boring stuff that goes on there. But we're on Instagram and Facebook, and I think we're TikTok and all those good things. And uh, again, it's just listed under Axis Golf Academy. So outstanding. Well, I'll I'll re reiterate it one more time. You guys are one of the best academies in the country. One of the best academies in Texas. All four of y'all, all five of you with Casey, do a phenomenal job. I, uh, I'm at a really cool place now and I've talked about how awesome this place is and you guys made it really hard for me to come up here because you guys are fantastic people. 
you're fantastic golf instructors learned a ton from y'all and again don't uh, this the the nicest stuff i'm ever going to say to you ever again so you, you gotta you gotta bookmark it um but no you guys have have made a huge impact on me just in the 10 months we've been together and uh obviously still going to see you once a month for a long time going coming down there and still working with some students but uh again guys listening at home if if you guys need some help if you if your coaches that are ever in houston go look them up because they are fantastic people fantastic golf coaches well i appreciate that uh chase and that i think you you got to see kind of how we we like to operate and we really loved having you there you know being able to you know when when one coach wants to kind of figure out why something's happening you know the beautiful thing about our group is well goodness i've got I've got three or four other coaches over here that I can go bounce that off of and see if they see something that I, I don't. And we're constantly doing that. Um, ben, EJ, Sean, um, Casey, man, I, I love those guys. We loved having you there. We love you. Um, it's, it's a cool environment. And we're, we're really lucky to get to hang around this, this game of golf. And man, I, I live my love every day and I'm very fortunate. My wife has allowed me to, to do these things all the time. It takes us away from home at times. And, uh, she gave me the luxury to, um, to, to be able to chase this and all of our wives have done that and all of our families have done that. So I appreciate you guys and everything that you're doing and, and Raymond, man, uh, I got to spend more time around you and, uh, and get into, and get into that. Cause uh, we all chase knows that I can use it not only for professionally, like for my students, but Man, I am a I am a basket case up here at the end of the day. So um, I well, hide it pretty there was, well. If but only there was a podcast you could listen to, or you could <laughs> learn more about that. This is the one. I actually went went. I listened to some of the other ones, and it's such. You guys do such a great job. It's great information. I think you're shedding some light on what being. Uh, into that performance world is all about and it's it, and i think the first thing that it's, it's not about is it's not about hiding from it it's about embracing the idea that man we're all humans we're all ready to learn we're all going to beat our head up against the wall every once in a while we're all going to trip and fall but as a group and as a profession if we can help pick each other back up and and throw a little knowledge and a little nugget to help somebody get just a little bit better at it man we get to sleep a little bit better at night too so it's pretty cool. It's just people helping people, Alan. That's it. That's it. All right. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and as Alan said, people, if you're in the Houston area, go swing by Axis, go see him and the rest of the guys there. And uh, Alan, once again, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. We'll see you soon. Howdy. Right. Take care. Yeah. See you guys. Bye.